Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. This is Eric Golden, and I'm thrilled to welcome you all to the first episode after our rebrand to Making Markets. This is a wide-ranging discussion on the economy with Samuel Rines, economist, author, and managing director of Corbu. We cover where we are in the economic cycle, exuflation, the state of the consumer, and the different sectors of the American economy. I think Sam is the perfect guest to kick off Making Markets, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Sam, thanks for joining me today. This is going to be a fun one as we're broadening the depths of the show here. So when people think about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy, a lot of people like to go on TV and tell you what they would do if they were chairman of the Fed. And it's an easy question. Maybe that's something we'll get to later. But I don't really care as someone who's a market participant what you think the Fed should do. What I care about is what the Fed is going to do and then how to position. So why don't we start there? What is your belief of what the Fed is going to do based on where we are in the economic cycle? You couldn't have worded it better. Who cares what the Fed should do? What the Fed should do is completely irrelevant to how you should position going forward. The Fed is telling you pretty, pretty carefully what it intends to do. It intends to either hike one more time this year or wait and see if the data says not to. So call it maybe 25 more, but you're probably skewed towards 25 more. They made that fairly obvious at the latest meeting. Then going into next year, it's pretty much let's follow the data. If the data says inflation continues to fall, you get a continued fade, unemployment begins to tick up a few tenths, maybe the Fed begins to realize this real restrictiveness is becoming a little too much. And I think this is a very important point that gets overlooked. And it was something that both Williams and Powell have talked about, is that it's all about real restrictiveness now. So as inflation falls, you become more real restrictive by holding interest rates higher. And entering 2024, if you continue to have a disinflation narrative, somewhat of a slowing in the labor market, which we really haven't seen that much of, by the way, even with strikes, even with what we've seen on the coasts, even with, call it the March debacle in banks, if we begin to have some sort of normalization in the inflation process, there's a chance that the Fed becomes a little 95, 96-ish and begins to cut rates just to maintain a normal level of real restrictiveness. So if you have 100 basis points of disinflation going into mid-2024, you could see the Fed begin to really consider 50, 75, 100 basis points of cuts, which was in the dots in June. Now it's only 50 to 75 in cuts, but that's a real chance. So I think there's a narrative that the market's really overlooking as the Fed enters the back half of the tightening and inflation cycle, 
that this is going to be a much more nuanced Fed as we move forward in terms of exactly how they're going to maintain that real restrictiveness versus simply just raising rates until they feel comfortable. If we rewind pre-COVID, I had a personal bias that was much more fear of deflation. The Bernanke papers of that thing that we don't know how to handle is when rates really got out of control. And I had general framework of all I'm seeing is technology eating the world, small and smaller teams just getting rid of labor, and we're not going to need this many people in the workforce. So I never thought you would get this labor wage inflation. COVID happens and it shocks the system. And clearly, there's a supply shock. You think about this. If nobody had global shutdown of the economic system on their bingo card. So when that happened, I want to rewind a little bit because you had some really interesting takes on how we got to here. But what happened and how did we end up now where you're talking to me about a Fed saying, I'm worried about inflationary pressure when I thought all the jobs were going to be eviscerated? COVID was an earthquake. And there are going to be aftershocks for much longer than we anticipate. And they're going to come from places we never really thought of. We never thought there'd be a global shutdown. We never really thought that we would see global supply chains break the way that we saw them break. And I don't think that we saw the leisure and hospitality employees as anywhere near as important as they were all of a sudden post-COVID. So you had a wage shock as well. And then you had agriculture shocks. And then you had a Ukraine shock on energy and food again. So you've really had a lot of people talk about the rolling recession narrative. What you've really had is rolling shocks to the system that have been continuously absorbed into both pricing structures of companies and cost structures of companies. And those are really, I would say, part of the problem for understanding the longer-term inflation narrative and the longer-term yield narrative. If you're looking at how is the Fed going to react over the next six months, tell me what the next shock is going to be and how it's going to ripple through the system, and I'll have a much better idea of how the FOMC is going to react to those. So I think it's much more of a question of how do we build much more economic resilient systems that can combat the potential for an inflation narrative that is pretty embedded at the moment? So you have a supply shock, you have this term preflation pop up, and then you coin price over volume or POV, which I think became pretty popular on the internet, which I love, which is this notion that it's not just supply chain inputs, it's giving the corporations an excuse to raise prices. Now, of course, like everything, it got political. But explain to me what price over volume means. Sure. So we'll start with greedflation. I hate that term. It's not greedflation. Corporations are not here to donate to the betterment of the world. They're here to make money and they're here to maximize their profits. If not, then you're probably not going to buy their stock. I think it's that simple. I think it was Tracy Alloway that coined excuseflation using the POV modeling. And POV, price over volume, is really this concept of Businesses had an excuse all of a sudden to pull back from being very volume-oriented in their growth mechanisms. If you think about the differential in the expense of revenue, pricing is changing a sticker on a bag of chips or changing a sticker on a bag of gum. That is a very cheap way to increase revenues. Increasing volume requires capital expenditures. That's a very expensive way for that incremental revenue to come in. So businesses, when supply particularly companies like Coke and Pepsi that nobody really saw these price increases coming from in the past, really saw the opportunity to raise their prices instead of attempting to compete on the volume side of things. And that was a big shift in the mentality of these businesses because 
you wouldn't have thought that they had the pricing power to do so. And as it turns out, they had an incredible amount of pricing power. Consumers were willing to pay up for their products at 15, 12, 16. Some of these numbers were nuts on a year-over-year basis for Pepsi and Frito-Lay, which Pepsi owns. Some of these numbers were incredible, and the volumes were only down 2 or 3%. So if you think about the trade-off of pricing to volume, they were more than happy to give up 2 or 3% of volume in order to get 15 16% pricing. That's a no-brainer if you're a business, particularly if you're a consumer staple whose pricing power was considered to be inflation at best prior to COVID. So this mechanism of being able to say to the consumer, well, supply chains are broken. It's much more expensive for us to get our inputs. Oil is more expensive. Supply of potatoes is more expensive to get. Labor is more expensive. Everyone had heard these narratives. Everyone understood it. And so they were willing to take the hit. Now that's begun to wane. And you've begun to see a little bit of a shift in the narrative coming from the consumer staples companies in particular. But it was certainly the story of early 2022 and really through the beginning of 2023 that these businesses that never really had the ability to find out how much the consumer was willing to pay found out how much the consumer was willing to pay and did it in a pretty meaningful way. Curious about the second order effects of this, this notion that before they were so price sensitive that there was this fear of if Pepsi costs more than Coke, there would be this easy switching cost. You'd lose all these consumers. So you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't mess with that too aggressively. Is this a temporary phenomenon that just naturally reverts back because it's capitalism and you go, the margins on chips are so high, let's start selling chips lower to undercut. And even if it's not temporary, how does that impact the consumer? Because it would seem to crush to me consumer spend, which has not been the case. So if you start charging people outrageous prices for their staple, I just would have assumed it slowed everybody down. That's the odd part is that it really didn't. So if you look at it, it's really hard to enter the quote unquote chip market unless your grocer is selling private label because you have to have the distribution channels. The distribution channels are really the quote unquote moats around these businesses and marketing the difference between knowing Frito-Lay off the top of your head and then knowing the next chip. There's a significant differential there. So you did see some shift to private label. Then you look at, there's this great little Midwestern company called Casey's General Store. It does a lot of their own private label. And one of the things they called out was that their private label pricing had moved up 12%. So if you're a private label competing theoretically on a value basis with a company raising their price 15, 16%, as long as you maintain that value, you can raise prices too. So it actually turned into something that allowed everyone to raise their price, just some more than others. So it's an interesting dynamic there. The other thing that's really interesting is if they go back to their typical pricing. So let's say 2024 pricing goes back to 2 to 3%. All of a sudden, that's not that inflationary and nobody really notices whether you're putting 2% on a product like toilet paper, chips, whatever. Nobody notices that 2 to 3%. But what it does is that's an additional 2 to 3% as to what you already put on. So pre-COVID to now, you're sitting at somewhere around 25% higher on price. Your input costs are not 25% higher. Your input costs are deflating across a number of these categories, particularly if you're heavy on the commodities and you've already given your employees and labor a significant pay raise. So a lot of that money begins to drop to the bottom line. And what you've really done is you've changed that margin mechanism at a lot of these companies 
from being highly reliant on volume. Now all they have to do is basically maintenance CapEx to have a little bit of volume out there. They don't have to have much. It's not like the population's growing wildly. You've changed the profit margin on a lot of these businesses rather meaningfully. I think that's being radically overlooked, that when pricing well-outstripped labor increases in cost, that's really your fixed in a way. Your variable costs on commodities begin to fall. That's an incredible differential to the bottom line over time. So it's really a story of price over volume that evolved into price and margin. I think that price and margin is going to be something in 2024 that takes a lot of people by surprise. And in that thesis, you don't see it being a temporary move where those margins start to regress back to their historical averages that they actually are going to maintain sustained margins for the foreseeable future. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a significant improvement in margin over time for these companies that were very boring. I think you have to be pretty sector and company specific when thinking about it, because there's some that do not benefit from it. So if you're an egg producer, you're not benefiting from price and margin. You're just selling a commodity into the marketplace and you're going to get whipsawed by the price of the commodity. So I think there's a significant difference that we have to pay attention to there. But for a number of these companies, they're simply not going to lower price. They're not going to add a significant number of individuals or increase wages significantly from here. They've already done that. And their input costs are disinflating or deflating. So all of a sudden, you really have a constructed margin profile moving forward. Not to mention a lot of these companies have a significant amount of technology to incorporate into their end market pricing that they haven't done yet. Where does the money come from? In the sense that, was it just excess savings and the consumer's like, I need to spend that money and I'm going to shift it or I'm not going to have as much spend on discretionary? Is it credit? Is it that the income inequality, like people who have more money are just buying more things? And I'm always fascinated when you have a shift like this that surprises people where it actually came from. So I think there's two things. One, we did have a spend down in our excess savings that was pretty substantial, not to discount that in a meaningful way. And you've had savings rates be fairly low. Those are two pretty powerful mechanisms when nominal wages are moving higher by a significant amount. So a lot of this spending increase in my mind and the ability to maintain it going forward has very little to do with these excess savings charts, has very little to do with the savings rate, and has a lot to do with the fact that nominal wages are moving at 4 to 8%, depending at what level of the wage spectrum you're at. So if you're making an additional 4 to 8% on a year-over-year basis, and your savings rate is 2%, that is a lot of money that you can put back into the system. And that's just on the wage front. If you think about the money that you're making on savings, you're getting an additional 5% pay bump on your savings from interest rates. That's a nice little kicker. If you're on Social Security, you had an almost 10% increase in your 2023 rate of pay. That's another nice increase for very, very high marginal spenders. So in my mind, it's much more of an income statement story than a balance sheet story. The US consumer's income statement is doing very well. The balance sheet is not that bad. And there's no fear of losing their job. There's no fear that their wages are going to be cut. As long as you have that type of confidence, you're going to continue to spend. So I think there was a significant shift coming out of COVID as wages began to rise. There was much less of a price sensitivity from the consumer and from the labor side of it, simply because all of a sudden they were in control. And it was the first time in a long time that they had felt that. I want to dive a bit into the they, and I think you might have mentioned this in the past when we've chatted on it, is that 
you had some of the notion that people look to. You had the tech workers on the coast, these high earners, they're getting laid off and we don't need as many as these high paying jobs. You had bankers and Wall Street say, maybe we don't need as much. You had a banking crisis. Back to your point, leisure. I don't go to restaurants and have waiters anymore. I'm clicking QR codes and presses tech. So there was high paying jobs to lower paying jobs. There seemed to be a lot of jobs that were being reduced. So which job, what part of the country was winning if a lot of the things that people were quoting on TV, which got the headlines of, oh, more layoffs here, who's winning? It was earlier in the year. I sent out a client note that was a little tongue in cheek where I put two lines around the coast and said, just ignore the coast for the remainder of this year because they just don't matter. And it was in March and it was a little tart. But the idea was that the banking crisis is not going to be felt by somebody in middle America. You know, it's not going to be felt by a farmer. These guys are just going to keep plugging along and they've never heard of Silicon Valley Bank. That bank collapsing doesn't matter. And that's turned out to be somewhat true. But I think it's really interesting when you look at who's really benefiting here is the middle of the country. The middle of the country is booming. You have sub three handles on unemployment in numerous Midwestern, middle of the country states. That's absurd. So not only is everyone employed, but they're getting paid more and being fought over. So I think that's a pretty significant change in terms of who's winning and who's winning meaningfully. There's an interesting thing when you look at where the IRA money, the Inflation Reduction Act money is really being spent. Almost all of it is capital in the ground in middle America. It's factories in Tennessee, Kentucky, You have some spending in Georgia. These are middle of America, largely ignored by investors that are absolutely booming. It's a pretty incredible thing to dig into. But middle America is seeing huge pay raises. Inflation is affecting them, but it's something they're willing to put up with as long as it continues to boom. And not to mention the oil patch in Texas did very well over the past year, year and a half. So there's a number of these overlooked places that are really intriguing from both a Inflation Reduction Act perspective, but also the perspective of the geopolitical side that is really beginning, and I think is going to be a much longer term story, to really aggressively show up in the numbers. So with that backdrop, if I ignore the coast, and I look at through Sam's lens, the consumer is crushing it and doesn't seem to be slowing. What stalls the consumer? Is it more than 25? So he has to break it just because when we study the Fed, the lesson for bond investors was the Fed always overstays its welcome and almost guaranteed will start a recession by over-tightening. And once and only once do they get it right and get a soft landing and everything is just great. But now everyone's telling me, yeah, this is easy. You just do your 12 and a half bips for every other month and you write slowly and everything's going to be great. But what slows the consumer? That's question one. And then maybe we'll follow up with this notion of soft landing versus hard landing. What slows the consumer? I think it's really two things. And one of them is not gasoline prices. I think that is way too cited and by most of the people on Wall Street, because one, we are the world's energy superpower. So that's not the negative it was for us 20 years ago. So the number one thing is gasoline might hurt some, but it benefits a lot, particularly for the US economy. What I think breaks the consumer is when wage growth goes back to two to 3%. Because that's a return mentally to the construct of more of a pre-COVID type thing. So it's no longer go, go, go. It's okay, now let's go back to spending two to three percent. Maybe you get a few ripples through different sectors as you get a slowing in the economy. 
But I think what breaks the U.S. consumer is really going to be much more of a mental and much more of an outlook and expectation than it is reality. And with the part that I struggle with, that is, if you've got less than 3% unemployment in the middle part of the country and people fighting, what would make anyone believe that you're going to see that until you get the unemployment rate up higher? It would have to come from the coast. I think that's really where you'll see the consumer under more pressure than the middle of the country, particularly given the tech sector is relatively more exposed to yields. And banking sector in the East Coast is relatively more exposed to yields and Fed policy. So if you continue to have a slowing in the tech sector and the finance sector, you could see coastal recession with a mid-America continuing their boom. And it would be best of all possible worlds for the Fed. Because on the statistical lines, you'd have a slowing in spending, and you'd have a little bit of an uptick in unemployment and downtick in some of the employment metrics. And you'd have theoretically a change in the inflation dynamic. It's one of those interesting things where you could have coastal hiccups and mid-America still booming. And it's the revenge of the middle, so to speak. So on this idea of soft landing, there's two things that come to mind. One is, I feel like the consensus is always the back half of something for a recession that we just keep saying a recession's coming and it's not coming. And then all of a sudden it's going to happen. Everything. I told you, see, I told you it was coming. So what's your take on where we are? And do you think probabilistically, what are the odds of a soft landing where the Fed's actually able to raise rates, cool the economy and not tip us over into a recession? Okay. So I'm going to be a little nuanced on this answer and hopefully it makes sense. We talk about the U.S. economy as the U.S. economy, but you have California, which is pretty levered to tech. You have Texas, that's oil. You have New York and New England, heavy on the finance side. And then you have middle America, which is agriculture, manufacturing, more blue collar in terms of its levers. So I think disaggregating the U.S. economy is important when we talk about soft landing, because I don't think the entirety of the economy gets a soft landing. I just don't think that that's a worthwhile way of thinking about it. We've already seen pseudo rolling recessions across different sectors. So I would say it's very difficult to say that the soft landing is for everyone. There will be very bumpy landings in different areas. Like if you're a realtor, I'm not sure that you believe the soft landing narrative. If you're significantly levered to commercial real estate, you don't think this is a soft landing. If you're in the oil patch, you think this is a boom. If you're in agriculture, you're like, this is great. If you're in manufacturing, you're thinking this is not a soft landing. And if you're in restaurants, you're like, wow, yeah, we had a soft landing. So I think it's really disaggregating into where are the soft landings, where are the hard landings, and where are the bumpy landings. And I think we're going to see more soft landings than hard landings, but there's also going to be a significant amount of bumpiness in between. I like that a lot. One sector we haven't touched on as much is leisure, vacation, travel which I think people put up charts where they have their grocery spending and they can see the price of goods and tissue paper and Frito-Lay is going up. But one that I just feel is a constant conversation is travel, just what vacations cost. And it's been quite outstanding. What's your take on that sector? Is that, again, just there's not as people working from home, so technically they can take more vacations than they could before, so there's more demand for it? I think it's a combination of a number of factors. One, middle America, again, got a whole bunch of extra money, and they really couldn't spend it on anything during COVID. So they spent a significant amount of that money going on a vacation that they wanted to go on. 
So you had booms in Disneyland and Carnival, etc. That's the 2022, early 2023 story. So you just had this wild amount of vacationing that went on and there was bookings for cruises are still doing amazing. But you also had a tremendous number of people getting back on airplanes. And this is a really interesting and nuanced thing because not all leisure is doing fantastic. Leisure and hospitality, that's restaurants, that's cruise ships, that's planes, hotels, et cetera. When you look at miles driven, we're not back to pre-COVID levels. So people aren't driving, they're flying. So that's an incremental change in the way that people get from point A to point B. And if you look at some of the destination restaurants that you would want to go to, those restaurants are performing very well relative to others. If you look at a company like Cracker Barrel, they are heavily reliant on real estate off of interstates. So the people that tend to frequent them and really push the traffic higher are people traveling on interstates, vacations, whatever. Those folks haven't come back in meaningful ways. And you saw Cracker Barrel really comment on this $80,000 a year income cohort underperforming for them. It's because they're getting on planes. They're not driving in cars. So it's an interesting dynamic. If you really pay attention to the underlying forces of what consumers are doing, there's a number of different ways to disaggregate it, but they're getting on planes. They're going on vacations. It's a lot easier to do that when you work from home. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. It's a much easier world to enjoy than it was pre-COVID. So we've touched on it, the real estate part of this. I remember with really low interest rates, Jeff Gunlack, who everyone couldn't get enough of at the point in time, was talking about this big mega thesis in mortgage backs that suburban homes were going to plummet in price as the baby boomers sold. This is pre-COVID. We're all going to move to the cities and live in micro apartments. So the 20-year-olds are used to living in a 200-square-foot box, and then we're going to have these towers. We're all going to live there. It's going to be the death of the suburbs, the death of real estate. Obviously, COVID, we're in a completely different spot. But now you've got mortgage rates that are significantly higher. So you've got people with rates below 4%. And you would assume, again, this is one of these fun things of maybe it will be right, but not right away, that a significant and shocking move in mortgage rates would crush housing prices. And you would have this dynamic of, okay, I'm not buying it. I can't afford that. So again, the marginal buyer, it's one of these things that I think is a fun myth to dispel. Let's start with residential and then we'll go to commercial real estate. So there's two ways that you have to look at the current residential market. And the first one is that existing home sales. So if you've already bought a home, existing home sales are just in the trash and they should be. Most individuals who bought a house over the last 30 years refied below 4% or bought with the original mortgage below 4%. So there is zero reason for them to think about selling their home in most cases. When it comes to new home sales, so these are homes that are being built mostly by home builders, those you've actually seen some incredible resilience in. And those companies have just announced pretty outstanding quarters relative to what you would expect. And it's because of two things. One, they can offer rate buy-downs that are pretty significant. And so everybody talks about, well, that must hit their margins pretty hard. No. So what they did, and this is brilliant, is the new home builders built homes, and then they were listing them for $650,000, a home that in 2019 might have been five hundred and fifty. Then you build in enough margin to then say, well, we'll buy down your rate and 
still $650,000, will buy down your rate by a couple of percentage points. So all of a sudden, your 7.5% mortgage is 5.5%, and that's a little easier to swallow. All of a sudden, your payment on that home is down to something it's a little more reasonable. So it's an interesting study in they raise prices in order to be able to give a little bit of incentive that doesn't hurt them at all. They're still at pretty good margins, particularly after lumber fell and a lot of the input costs fell and labor became a little more available. The home builders are absolutely crushing it at the moment. So I think there's a really interesting dynamic of existing homeowners really can't offer a rate buy down. That's on the buyer. So there's a lack of incentive really on that front. But the new home builders are sitting there like, prices are up. We can buy down your rate a couple of points, come buy it. And they're selling homes. And they're selling a lot of them at pretty high prices. Let's go to commercial. Commercial is even more of the boogeyman. There's all these towers and Microsoft is walking away from buildings and New York City is going to go under because all this wealth is going to be destroyed. It happened with the banking crisis. These banks lent to commercial real estate. There's a little sputter there. But again, haven't seen the carnage that I think everyone is either expecting or cheering for. Like you said, it's not maybe a soft landing if you're a commercial real estate investor, but I also am not seeing the carnage that some had predicted. So there's a couple of things there. One, you are seeing a significant number of workouts of commercial real estate. So you're not getting the blowups that might have happened, but you're getting a lot of workouts. You're getting a lot of extensions in terms of those payments. So commercial real estate is not doing great, but it's not blowing up because people are trying to work through it. And I think that the banks being willing to work through it is really, at one point, I think this was a 2012, 2013 type of saying, but extend and pretend that everything is fine. And I think if the banks are willing to extend and pretend long enough, those buildings will fill back up. There's an incentive to be in an office, particularly if you have kids, you're going to the office at least a couple of times a week to get away from them. <laughs> Do you have a catchphrase for that one yet? Yeah. <laughs> you need to put an acronym on return from kids or something. So there's nuances, which makes sense. And maybe it's the PTSD of how many crashes there's been, straight up earthquakes, not just the tremors. But do you have any areas on your red list that get you fired up? I know it's obviously a popular thing to do to go on CNBC and Bloomberg and tell people China's going to collapse or there's leverage in the system or the treasury basis trade is going to explode. Everyone, I feel like, it's a good state to be in because I think it prevents excess risk-taking when everyone's worried about a blow-up, but it also prevents long-term wealth accumulation if every day you're turning on fear factor and you think, oh my God, the world's going to end. The pockets of stress are always interesting. We have this great experiment. The Fed did lower rates beyond what anyone would see normal for a period of time. Clearly, there is excess. I think the more logical and pragmatic thing is it just can't just end all well for it. There has to be something. I don't want to be on the side of the whole world's going to end and we lose the dollar reserve currency. But I'm just saying, what are areas that are maybe not flashing red, but have you the most like, this is the thing that I'm watching. If this gets worse, I'm going to be concerned. So I'll say something somewhat controversial here. I think it's private equity and some of the much more private businesses, particularly that are three to five years in, that were COVID heavy in terms of their initial successes and are... COVID heavy in terms of their failure following COVID or potential failures following COVID. I think there was some significant valuation issues for companies that benefited from COVID on the private side that haven't been realized yet. And I think once we really begin to wash out some of those, it becomes a much more interesting picture for private equity going forward. But I think you have to have the washout. 
I think of it as the private Zooms of the world. Zoom and a lot of companies like Zoom benefited wildly from us being locked in our basements working during COVID. And there's going to be a significant washout of companies that simply were necessary during COVID, but are no longer. So think of it as the telehealth type companies that were incredibly important during COVID, but now people actually want to go see a doctor and they have to go see a dentist, that type of deal. And is that washout a contained washout? Clavasis talks about volatility laundering, kind of how they can navigate that longer because they don't have to market like a public portfolio would be. Is that contained to them or are there interesting things like the bank's leverage, term loans? Is there anything else in the system from a macro standpoint that are knock-on effects? I totally get it. Telehealth, the Zooms, they get crushed. Interesting. What's more curious, I'm wondering if you're seeing anything of, well, if this goes, you're going to trigger a much larger contagion risk. I just don't think there's enough leverage in the system for there to be a significant amount of contagion risk that the FOMC can't handle very easily. So we saw bank balance sheets get solved with BTFP, the Bank Term Funding Program. We had one week of maybe all these banks have horrible balance sheets. And then the next week, the Fed was like, no, 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 their balance sheets are perfectly fine. We guarantee it. And that was basically a pseudo way of solving the commercial real estate contagion. Because theoretically, these banks will have enough capital to be perfectly fine if the CRE really turns into much more of an issue. So I think there was probably a significant amount of potential contagion that could have happened, particularly earlier this year, when interest rates really got to that breaking point for banks. But overall, it's a completely different story after the Fed says, nah, that's not a contagion. See you later. Moving on. We're going to keep raising rates. And when's the last time somebody posted a chart of the bank term funding program's assets? It was like two months of it's going to, and then it was, uh, and moving on. Now we're concerned the Fed is too far ahead of the curve and all this other stuff. I mean, the narrative just instantaneously went away to, we're going to have a crisis to maybe it's a soft landing. So at Corbo, you have these products that we've gone deep into the first theme of the Fed and potential things that they will do. To wrap that up, Do you believe the Fed missteps or how could the Fed mess this up? So I would argue that the Fed always makes a mistake in one way or the other. Just like any good investor, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes pretty much every cycle. Um, The question is limiting those mistakes and limiting the damage that they do. The interesting part about, I call it the Fed's mistakes, is that even though the Fed had this whole idea of transitory, that they wouldn't have to raise rates as dramatically to squelch inflation. They still did raise rates to squelch inflation. It wasn't like they stuck to their transitory narrative forever. They're not the Bank of Japan. They really stepped in and said, we're going to get this. So you could argue that it was a misstep to transitory to begin with. You could argue that it was a misstep to bring rates to five and a half, maybe 575 on the top of the ranges. You could argue that those both are mistakes. The problem there is that the Fed also took the steps to say and articulate that it's willing to be somewhat flexible in its understanding of the U.S. economy. And as its opinion and outlook for the economy evolves, so too will its policy stances. And I think that's really the interesting part here is as we move particularly into 2024, it's going to be much more important to understand how the Fed operates on the other side of a tightening cycle than it has been for a very long time. I think the last time we were on the other side of one was 08. 
So it's very important to understand how the Fed is going to navigate that. And there's probably going to be a few missteps. It's going to accidentally communicate that it's dovish for whatever reason in a 25-point rate cut to maintain a real restrictiveness level. It's going to maybe be a little too hawkish and say, we're just cutting 25 basis points to see what it does, blah, blah, blah. We may not continue. All of a sudden, market takes that as hawkish. So I think there's a number of ways that the Fed can be misinterpreted. And it's a mistake only on the side of markets, not necessarily a mistake on the part of the Fed. That's fair. That makes sense to me. So COVID was an earthquake, but it does feel that we live in this time of global earthquakes with a war in Ukraine, headlines about China and the South Sea. How does that impact your macro view? And not so much as the geopolitical part is interesting to me, but more so its take on markets and what you think the follow-on impacts are to how you position a portfolio. So we call it re-regionalization broadly. That's our banner for how we think about investing in the developed markets in particular. And breaking that down, I think it's really important to think about things in terms of risk, because I call them advantageous risks. The question is, how do you take advantage of them in terms of portfolio construction, whether it's a long-only portfolio or a long-short? So we view the China, Russia, Ukraine dynamic as an advantageous risk to portfolios. So I would argue that emerging markets ex-China are actually really, really intriguing here, but it's ex-China. I don't think you want to take the China risk. And going back to why is Russia. We now understand what the Western world is capable of doing overnight to portfolios that hold adversarial equities, fixed income, currencies, etc. It's an instantaneous zero. And you can look at a whole bunch of different emerging market ETFs and emerging market funds that held significant Russia positions, and those are now marked at zero. And those range from 5 to, in some cases, 15 20% of an ETF or of a fund. And that can go to zero. China is a much larger piece of emerging market portfolios, typically. And we know that it is very, very simple to have OFAC, which is the US agency that runs the policies when it comes to sanctions. OFAC can just say, nope, you are not allowed to hold those anymore, period, full stop, and you're at zero. And we have this big policy report out of the Brookings Institute not too long ago that's really looked at what the US could do if China were to invade Taiwan. And it read OFAC's response to Russia. And if that is what you're going to see the Western world do, you're going to have your portfolio marked to zero overnight. And that's, I'm not going to say it's a 50% risk, but a zero on 25 to 30% of a position is a significant intangible risk that I think investors have to pay attention to. And it's not one that you have to take to get the beta. That's the other side of it. You don't have to have Chinese equities directly in order to benefit from the tail risk that China reopens and has a robust consumer sometime in 2024. Right? You can play that via their major trading partners, whether that's Australia, whether, whether you want to play it more on an EM level. You can play it as a broad EM beta because that'll be good for commodities and economies tend to be driven by commodities. So I think you can look at a China portfolio and say, I don't need that risk but I can benefit regardless of whether or not it opens. So it's an advantageous risk there. And as you're positioning your portfolios, is that an investment play that you turn on and off based on the temperature? Or is it just a position that you say, 
you need to have this exposure. This is the safest way to get it. And let's focus on the other themes of your strategy. So China is not something I'm going to turn on. I just don't see the point in turning it on with that type of risk, just broadly in markets. EM generally, I would say you tend to want to have some exposure to, but you don't necessarily have to have a tremendous amount of exposure to it unless the time is right. And the time is right when you have a strong US dollar, you have commodities that have generally traded fairly sideways on a broad basket basis, aside from energy generally, and you have a potential for an improving global economy. You have to remember that the only economy in the world that has actually done pretty well is the US over the past two years. And much of the emerging world is highly levered there. So you just haven't seen the type of global economic activity that you would normally want to see. And you get a benefit from investing in EM from a global acceleration and the potential for a dollar that is either moving sideways or lower. So I think that's the way that I would position around EM generally and why I would not be taking a position in China anytime soon. If somebody wants to trade it, they can trade in and out of it. But one, I don't see the point in having to wake up every morning and check to see whether or not China invaded Taiwan. I just don't see the fun in taking that type of client risk. This has been a lot of fun, Sam. We could do this forever. I guess if I was going to end it, the question I'd go with is, what's your favorite out-of-consensus bet? My favorite out-of-consensus bet is that we are in the first inning of re-regionalization back to the United States, that we have yet to see the full effects of businesses understanding that it is incredibly important to have your supply chain closer, that you need to innovate around that, and that in order to have a sustainable business with the threat of COVID or the threat of a Taiwan invasion or the threat of Russia-Ukrainian war, you have to and cannot ignore manufacturing things closer to home. That is, I would say my most out of consensus view is that middle America is going to be the investment story of 2025 to 2035. Well, let's take a trip to middle America. Sam, thanks for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. It's always fun. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.